I want to use this last Sunday in December to speak on a passage that sometimes we um, misunderstand uh, in the series of preparing for Christmas. And um, it is found in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And I ask you to stand as I read the Word of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi came from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Herod was acquainted with what was about to happen. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophets. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation in our hearts be acceptable to you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. I was brought up in a country where daily at school we used to sing, God bless our gracious, save our gracious queen, long live our gracious queen, uh, king. And then the queen came and then it had to be changed Uh, to that. If you had any kind of a British influence, you will know how important the monarchy is. We we, we lived by that. There was a time when it was said concerning the British British Isles that the sun never sets on the British Isles. There's not a place that one could go to that one would not find the British flag flying. Not too long ago, There were some excavators doing some work in the middle of London. And lo and behold, they came across the bones of Richard III. And it was a big deal because, you see, the British really, really love their monarchy. 
There might be a few here and there who say we should get rid of that, but that's not the sentiment of the entire country. We love the monarchy, the British would say. Now, the big problem now, because they want to make sure that a king gets his rightful place even if it's a burial place. And so now it's not where the bones of Richard III is, it's where are we going to bury them. It's important to them that they have a burial place for Richard III. Americans do not like the idea of a king. Americans do not like the idea of one person ruling a nation. We believe in democracy. We, Americans don't mind the British monarchy as long as it stays over there. And not only do they not mind it, they spend money every year to go over there to look at all the crown jewels and, and so on and so on and so on. Our text this morning tells us that when Christmas was introduced to the human race, a king came. In spite of the way we feel about kings and monarchies, see, one of the problems we have is that kings today are ugly. Kings, in our experience, are people that we despise because of their corruption. Yet, when we are told about what happened that first Christmas, and by the way, I, will, I hope I don't offend some of you this morning. For the simple reason. You know, I was, I was singing there and I was looking at the display of the, the we call them three wise men. Nobody knows that there were three. The best guess is that there were about 12. Then they were not at the nativity scene. They never made it there. They may have been traveling, but they never made it there. Uh, we're not told that they were kings. There were people who had experience in perhaps some astronomy, but mostly in astrology. But something happened in the East. Something that arrested their, their attention. They looked up in the sky and somehow God brought together. And it's amazing, isn't it? Matthew is the gospel written to Jews. But it opens with Gentiles coming to talk about what God was doing. Even there, if they were from Persia, some people say the east, it could be Japan. Nobody knows. But when, wherever they were, somehow with the activities that they saw in the heavens, something clicked. And it was their conviction that they could not sit still while this phenomenon was taking place. It drove them from where they were because somehow, whether they were acquainted with it or not, from the book of Numbers we are told, that a star would, would rise. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. It was history that brought these magi 
to Jerusalem. It was history. It was, it was physical phenomenon that in the midst of the chaos, they saw something that affected them. We want to look at that for the next few minutes. As we talked about their message, they came to Jerusalem and they said, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star. There are two tremendous truths that these magi will bring out at this point. And I have titled this section, The Pre-Incarnate Reality. The Pre-Incarnate Reality. Listen to what they said. Where is he who is born king? Now, now if you know history at all, kings are not born. They can become kings after they are born. Even in the British system, kings were not born. You had the potential, and right now there are so, so many who are in line that, that it is, it is, it is going to take a lifetime if each of them is to become king, especially if they reign as long as Elizabeth has. Sixty years she's been in there. What do we mean by being born king? The wise men, as we call them, are telling us something about the royal pedigree of Jesus. Where is he who is born king? What do we mean when we say he is born king? This is just a baby in a home. He's less than two years old. And yet they are recognizing something of his eternal pedigree. Born king, he was not to become, but he was born one. The conception of Mary was so that God, in his royal pedigree, could come to earth. Not as a, as a man, simply, but as someone who has been alive for all eternity past. And now, he's coming to earth, and he wants us to know. Think of it. The angel went to the shepherds, despised people. People that do not have the best reputation, so to speak, in the community. The angel didn't go. God didn't send his son to Jerusalem, the state capital, the place where kings are born. Their, their, their tombs are there. Instead of that, he was born in a manger. But in that manger was someone who was alive long before he arrived in that manger. Not only was he alive, he existed in a regal, regal setting. He, he was king of the universe. He was, he was king of heaven. He was king of earth. St. Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, says this. But you know, talking to the Corinthians, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, now that doesn't mean, friends, he had a lot of money. He owns all the money, but that's, this is not talking about, about dollars and cents. He was talking about being rich in dignity. 
rich in the sense of character, in purity. Rich in the sense that he owns everything. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. So, so in that manger was the owner of the universe in the form of a baby. And somehow the wise men had the consciousness that Jesus existed before he was born. Now, what do we mean by he was rich? Please listen. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. This is Jesus, my friends. For we are told in John 12, 41, that 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 was Jesus that was seen in his pre-incarnate state. Reigning in heaven, filling the universe, the awareness of who he was, that the very foundation of the building shook because he's so high above every created thing. His reign is not a position to which he aspired. He has no beginning, no end, and so he reigns by his own fiat, not by the permission of anything. That's his pedigree. Now why don't we like kings? Why do we say that's okay for them over there but I don't want any one man telling me how to live my life. There's something in each of us that says that. I borrow from C.S. Lewis. I love this. He says, what makes this controversial is that we believe in democracy, not in kingdoms. In fact, in the Lord's Prayer, what do we pray? Thy kingdom come. And when we pray for his kingdom to come, we are asking for the king. But at the same time, we don't want a king. Saudi Arabia is not an attractive system to us. Democracy is what the world is moving toward. It's what we are fighting for in Iraq. Rule by a king was more a primitive form of government, wasn't it? Democracies are more advanced, more developed, more suitable for the modern world. This is where history is going. Democracy, not kingdom. Lois said, let me respond to this very soberly and very simply. The only legitimate reason that kingship is not attractive to us is because in this age and in this world, only king, the only kings available are finite and sinful. A great deal of democratic enthusiasm 
descends from the ideas of people like Rousseau, that's the philosopher, who believed in democracy because they thought, listen to this now, that mankind was so wise and so good that everyone deserves a share in the government. Democracy is because we believe that everyone should have a share in the government. We are good enough. We vote you in so that we, I remember, I won't say who it is to save his reputation, but when, you remember, the moral majority got Ronald Reagan into power. I was still living in Canada at the time. I followed it just as I do here. And someone asked this religious leader, said, um, okay, so the moral majority, for those of you who are under whatever, if you don't know what the moral majority is, back in the 80s, 60s, 70s, 80s, there was a movement of the moral majority who said, we need a change of government, so we need to put someone in there who has some moral so-and-so, Mr. Reagan, was voted in. And so this person was asked, now that you have the man in there, what if he doesn't do what you put him in there to do? See? You put him in there to do. That's democracy. And the answer came, we put him in, we can get him out. <laughs> I remember listening to that, and I thought, this is our, this is our concern, see? That we believe that we are good enough to say who is and who is not. Because we do not believe in the innate sinfulness of man. So Lewis goes on. Lewis says, the danger of defending democracy on those grounds is that it is not true. Rousseau, you are wrong. Moral majority, you are wrong. I find that, I find that they are not true without looking further than myself. I deserve, I don't deserve to share in governing a hen's roost, much less a nation. The real reason for democracy is mankind is so fallen that no one man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows. Aristotle, he said, said that some people were only fit to be slaves. I don't contradict him, but I reject slavery because I see no men so fit to be masters. So when we talk about a king, a king, as far as the Bible is concerned, has powers that, that others do not have. Democracy says, you have power because I give it to you. And so these, these, these people came from the East, where democracy was perhaps, where corruption was perhaps, where a king was perhaps. But everything that they saw said, we need another kind of a king. So that star said to them, a king has come. I want you to see something. I stood in my study dealing not only this pedigree of the one born, but look at his possession. We have seen his star. Have you ever read that, my friends, and thought that he's not only talking about a star that belongs to him or directed to them for him. No, he's talking about 
It's in the possessive case. We have seen his star. It belongs to him. I want to take you back to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 25 to 27. Listen to this. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by numbers and calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong and powerful, he brings out the host and he calls them by name. When God wanted to show Abraham something, he took him out at the night stars and said, look up. Can you count the stars? <laughs> no. Well, God, my friends, does not only count them, he names them. And at a certain point in the eternal program, God called a star. Now, people have given all kinds of imaginative explanation for what this is. Nobody knows exactly what it is, my friends. But this much we know. That that star, I heard someone said it was an angel because the word angel comes from the word star and vice versa. Well, I guess to each his own. But that's not, I think it is. He's talking about a real star. Because you see, God was able to single out that star for his purpose. And at the right time, he called that star. Whatever name he had given to that star. And he said, I want you to go here. God can do that, friends. Read the book of Jonah. God called a storm into existence. He called a fish into existence. Can he not call a star? Can he not bring this star? He didn't say, hey, you. <laughs> he called the star by name. This is how great God is. The one to whom the star was leading was the one who created the stars. Absolutely fabulous experience. And we experience Christmas again and again and again. And it just goes over our heads. We never stop to think. Can you, can you name the amount of stars that are in the universe? And not one of them is missing from before the presence of God. He can call into existence not only the stars, but he gives them names. To name is to own, is to rule over. We're told that the stars are subject to God's authority. He gives assignment to any star that God was in control over, over the, 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 the movements of the star can be seen in verses 3 to 8. That star was leading them. And they had their eyes fastened in the midst of all the other star. This one star was significant because their hearts were beating as they followed that star. Somehow the star was missing from their sight for a few minutes or a few days. And when they saw the star again, they were filled with exceeding joy. 
even though the star went out of view for a few minutes or a few days, God was still in control. And when you can't see his star, he will bring it back where you can see it again and you can continue to follow him. We used to sing. He owns the cattle in a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. Do you remember that? If you're old enough as I am. My friends, God is not bankrupt. God is not at his wit's end wondering how is he going to make his promises come to fruition, the wonderful promises he has made. He has given us promises that are, that are blowing our minds. We think we've got to do something to help God to get these promises through. Friends, he needs no help. He owns them. In Psalm 50, he said, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you because the cattle belong to me. I feed the mountain goats up there. They belong to me. The rain that comes down belongs to me. He was rich. Jesus in eternity owned everything. He was sitting upon a throne, says Isaiah chapter 6. And the very creatures in heaven bowed to him. And so when he called the star, the star had no other choice but to obey him. You see, earthly kings, Queen Elizabeth has absolutely no power. If you ever watch the opening of Parliament in Britain, and there is a replica of that in all Canadian, uh, um, British countries, because in Canada we have the Governor General, and the Governor General is the representative of Her, Maj of Her Majesty the Queen in England. So whenever Parliament is open, the Queen will sit on the throne and she will read a speech that was given to her by the Prime Minister. She doesn't write it. She just mouth it. In Canada, or in Australia, or in the country in which I was born, there's a governor general. And when the ruling party wants to tell what his platform will be, he writes it out, gives it to the general governor, the governor general, and he reads it. No power. No power. Every January or February, I think, you have the presidential speech in the nation's condition. And he tells you what he's going to do. <laughs> I'll leave that right there. So let me quickly go to the personal response. We have seen his star, the star that he owns, but the star that is leading us to where he is. Now what is their response? And we have come to worship him. My friends, this is absolutely important. Because way back there in Persia, or in Asia, from wherever these magi came, there was a burning desire to be fulfilled in their hearts. There was, as Augustine puts it, Thou hast made us for thyself, and we are restless until we find our rest in thee. 
We have come to worship him. You see, worship is life's highest purpose. And they knew back there that what they were doing, the gods they had, the kings they had, they knew back there that, that, that what they were worshiping was not fulfilling. It was not filling the vacuum, the cavity that was in their hearts. We have come to worship him. A couple of years ago, Tom Brady, the quarterback for the Patriots, I think he had won his third Super Bowl ring. He had married a lovely, lovely girl. And Tom Brady was being interviewed on television. And this is what he said. In spite of three rings, in spite of all the wealth, in spite of having a wonderful girl, there is still something missing in my life. You see, my friends, not to worship is not to find life's greatest purpose. Not to worship is to miss the mark because we were created for God, by God. I, I, was, I was impressed with a question that was asked when the Pharisees said to Jesus, should we be paying tax? And Jesus said, bring a coin. And they brought a coin. And he said, whose inscription is on the coin? And they said, Caesar's. And Jesus said then, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Jesus didn't say something, but there's great implication in that. If you worship the inscription that you see, in whose image are you made? See, if, if, if Caesar is the impression on the coin, that's the image you serve. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But since you are made in the image of God, you should be worshiping God. Because you and I are made in that image. And whatever inscription is there, our superscription, that's what we should gravitate to. But lo and behold, we don't. Uh, Remind me of a story I heard just this past week. A little boy was sitting looking at the, the, uh, a replica of Jesus, whatever that looks like, and the teacher was getting the, kid read, the children ready in the classroom for their Christmas play. And he was sitting there, just, just carried away by whatever he saw there, and the, t- the teacher said to him, what are you doing? He said, I'm just looking at Jesus. And she pulled the kid away, We don't have time for that. We've got to get ready for Christmas. I love that. We don't have time for Jesus. We've got to get ready for Christmas. What did you get ready for, my friends, this past December? For Christmas? Or did you see in that cradle, in that house, was a king? was a king. And when you see the king, what is it you desire to do? Driven, driven by this this passion in their hearts, they were going to wherever that star was going to lead them because that star was going to help them to come to the answer of life's greatest question, what am I here for? What is the purpose of my existence? 
Even before they saw the child, they said, I want to worship him because that might be the answer to my quest. That might be the answer to my quest. So they got into the house and they saw Mary. They didn't worship her. They saw the child and they worshipped. Now please listen to me carefully because you might misunderstand me again. The word for worship is the word that is usually used in almost Old and New Testament, Hebrew and Greek, the word to fall over, to bend over, to bow. That's the word. There is the noun form, there's the verb form. But the word literally means to crouch. Have you ever noticed... And, and again, I could be misunderstood here. Talk to me afterwards if you, if you don't understand me. Do you notice that when people get into a crowd to worship God, they raise their hands? But the word for true worship is to bow the knees, not to raise the hands. Nothing is wrong with raising the hands. But my friends, if it misrepresents what the knees ought to be doing, then there's something wrong with it. You see, by raising their hands... We give something to God, so to speak. But bowing the knees, we say, you are worthy of my worship. Let me quickly get to my next point. What happens when we discover life's greatest quest? When, 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 it, when it helps us to discover the true purpose for which we're here. Look at them exercising life's greatest purpose. In verse 11. In verse 2, they are searching for him. In verse 11, they found him. And when they found him, they bowed down. The first thing they did was to bow down. The proof that we have worshipped God is that we acknowledge God to be God. That is, my friends, when we worship, there will come a conviction in our hearts that we are but creatures and He is the eternal, life-giving One to whom we owe everything we have, everything we are, for He alone can live without me, but I cannot live without Him. They bow down. And they open their treasures. See, worship is after seeing who God is that the most precious thing to you, you can surrender to Him because the most precious thing you have is not worthy or equal to Him. Gold. They acknowledge His royal dignity. Frankincense. They acknowledge his deity. See, everything having to do with him. Even though I am giving my offering, it has to do with him. You gave it to me first, I'm giving it back to you. Myrrh, the preparation for death. So worship is, is acknowledging God. It is the submission of our whole nature to God. It is to be affected by his holiness affected by his purity, 
affected by his love, affected by his word. See, when I worship, something happens to me. So what happens? Being warned of God. See, worship is an encounter. And being warned of God, not by their imagination. I was driving out of Salem this morning, and I never saw it before. I, I, don't, I don't know how long it's been there. And as you're entering West Salem, there's a sign right there that up the road is a psychic that you can get to know what will happen tomorrow. Uh, I know two people who aren't going to see this woman. Because you see, friends, once we have worshipped and we encounter the living God, we are ready for Him to direct our path. Psalm 25, verse 14, The secret of the Lord is with them who fear Him, and He will show them what they should do. So all of a sudden now, what worship does, it, it puts me in connection with the eternal wisdom, the wise one, so that he can direct my path. So that when I pray, your kingdom come, I look to see how I obey him in the everyday things of life that leads to who he is. There is an encounter with God, and perhaps worship is boring to some people because they have never met God. They have never reached God. They keep back for themselves some of the frankincense and some of the myrrh. I don't know that I want to give God all. So by keeping back, you never get to where you're supposed to get. So God becomes a distant worshiper, worship for you. You don't mind doing some of the things that are religious, but I don't want an encounter where God is able to warn me, to speak to me, to redirect my life. So what? Worship will lead to a different direction. Different direction. They departed another way. Encounter with God will lead to an enforcement by God. The Apostle Paul was on his way to Damascus. He was going to kill Christians. And in, uh, halfway there, he met, he had an, an encounter. And the next thing we find him doing is that he's doing what he was once known for to be an enemy of, that is worshiping God. True worship is not only an encounter, it is a transformation. They were warned in God that they should go another way. So St. Paul says to us in Romans chapter 12, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. Worship. So my everyday life becomes an act of worship so that I do not do anything carelessly because everything I do is an offering to God from the treasure of my heart. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Amen.